Hello and welcome to Stories of Scotland, a podcast to keep you company on walks home in the dark and stop you straying too far from the path. I'm Jenny, your friendly supernatural spirit guiding your way. And I'm Annie, a much less supernatural archivist. In this season, we've been exploring all things clans, crofts and Kayleys, focusing particularly on Highland culture. To cheer us all up after our emotional exploration of Claude and Battle, this week we'll be looking at... Wait, 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 actually, Annie, instead of, um, instead of telling folks what this episode is about, can I do this introduction with a Victorian riddle that I found? If you absolutely insist, Jenny. I do. Okay, <clears throat> let's go. In the dreary moonless night, when rainy clouds hang low... I am seen with my glimmering light through the valley creeping slow. You are a street lamp? Nope. This riddle is set in the rural highlands in the 1800s, so while a valiant first guess, Annie, there are no street lamps here. I sadden the gloom of night when I burn over the deep quagmire, when the peasant looks with a fright on my rayless spectral fire. You are a confident candle with attitude, or maybe a bonfire. <laughs> no, no, although I do like the idea of a sassy candle yelling that the wax is about to spill everywhere. <laughs> That'll be Gwyneth Paltrow's next candle. It'll smell just like a Highland bog. <laughs> when the drunkard goes astray, I come, but not to save. My task is to guide his way and light him to his grave. Okay, you've gotten a bit spooky, Jenny. You're no longer this innocent little candle that I was imagining. Maybe maybe a ghost? Not at this precise moment, Annie, but give me a few years and a seance and I will be a very active ghost. Excellent. No friend is here to wail, no hands to dress the deed. There is no one near to tell the place where his corpse is laid. There's a gleam in the eastern sky, tis the rays of the rising sun. A signal for me to flee, my unhallowed task is done. You're a midnight murderer? Close, but no turnip, Annie. And to be honest, you probably should have just read the episode description, but that's fine. But now that I think of it, I am actually a combination of a confident candle, a spooky ghost, and a midnight murderer. Because I am a spunky. A spunky? Is this another one of Gwyneth Paltrow's candles? <laughs> Not quite, Annie. Instead, I am a spookery, shimmering, stealthy spunky. Also known as a Will o' the Wisp, or... Willie the Wisp, another of Gwyneth Paltrow's. <laughs> you may have seen me in the Pixar film Brave. I am the strange orbs of light that guide the main character into the land of the supernatural. I have an IMDb page. Ah, of course you do, Jenny. <laughs> so in Gaelic, we call these the Chinnashi, or the fairies of the light, but they aren't really considered fairies at all. Um, though they do have a kind of impish presence, it's just a way of saying that they are something made of magic, a supernatural fire. 
there's actually there's so many names for them in Gaelic. Another is the Chinna Birach, the sharp fire. And all of these names come back to the belief that the Will of the Wisp is some kind of cursed flame. I've not seen many stories where the Will of the Wisp is supporting a character in the way that we've seen in Brave. I am the lead role when it comes to supporting characters of fiery balls of light. (laughs) So what's the main folklore of this strange fire creature, Jenny? Imagine that you are a weary traveller walking home in the dark. There is no electric light guiding you, just your eyesight, the glistening stars and the last sliver of a waning moon. But clouds are forming and soon the path before you is darkened. You can barely see a few feet ahead. But lo, there's a light in the distance, hovering just above the ground. It looks safe and warm. Perhaps it's a trick of the light, or maybe you're close to home and actually seeing the flame from your fireplace through the door. Who has left this blooming door open again? I swear, do we live in a shilling? <laughs> <laughs> Likely, yes. <laughs> As you approach the light, guided forward by its promise of home, you realise just too late that it's not your own welcoming hearth you see, but a phantom fire, a spunky a will o' the wisp. It has guided you away from your safe path and now you are more lost than ever before. Your feet are getting wetter with every step and the ground seems to be sucking you towards it. The spunky has led you into a dangerous bog and while flailing to pull one leg out, the other becomes more stuck. You collapse over and twist your legs. You're cold and stuck and far, far away from home. Okay, so the Will of the Wisp is a very dangerous mythical creature, and it looks like a ball of floating fire. Is that correct, Jenny? In most cases, yes, that is correct. It's a kind of phosphorus floating light, but sometimes it is also thought to be carried by a Trixie Pixie or an imp or troll. So instead of floating... It's being carried by a mischievous little creature. It's quite a mean little spirit, isn't it? It is, yes. It's not the nicest of the Scottish folklore. Taking something so special and safe as a warm guiding light and leading poor weary travellers into bogs. And that's exactly what makes it so dangerous. Because for as much damage that fire can do, for the most part, we humans can control it and have been using it to our benefit for millennia. It signifies warmth and safety, especially in the northern climates. It's the sole reason humans were even able to survive this far north. As the last ice sheets retreated 10,000 years ago, humans and our fire followed. Without fire, in the cold, dark, wet climates of the north, us thinly-haired humans didn't stand a chance. For thousands of years, fire has been at the centre of the home, literally at the centre. Just look at Scarra Bray, where a large hearth sits right in the middle of each of the 5,000-year-old houses. A warm space where food was cooked and safety ensured. And over time, the meaning and significance of fire has evolved with us. From warmth to rituals and spiritual significance, to metalwork, feasts and gatherings, seasonal celebrations, all the way to the modern day of bonfire night, 
wood-burning stoves, the allure of a campfire and expensive sassy candles. It's still central to our lives. I find what is most terrifying about the Will of the Wisp legend is that it completely inverts all of the comfort and all of the security of the light and the fire. It becomes something incredibly menacing and something that really can't be trusted at all. We spent so much time last year looking at the supernatural creatures who live in the oceans and the lochs, which have this kind of, you know, similar significance to just basic human survival. And there aren't that many counterparts or fire, but I feel that the Will of the Wisp really embodies this place being such an evil spirit that wants to guide people to their dooms, that wants to get them lost. It's a promise that is never fulfilled. The light and the warmth that fire offers, and yet inevitably, travelers are always drawn into its alluring glow to freeze or drown in a cold, dark, damp, marshy bog. Do you remember, Annie, when we said we were going to make this episode light and fun compared to the Culloden ones? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we said we'd make it happier. We didn't say we'd be doing Disney. (laughs) Actually, Annie, we're doing Pixar with Brave, completely different companies. (laughs) As with most inexplicable supernatural happenings, people were keen to explain these phantom lights, the will of the wisps, scientifically. And I found one such attempt from the Inverness Courier in the 1860s. So Jenny, I need you to be an educated country gentleman in the Outer Hebrides. Why certainly. Do not fear the will of the wisp. I beg to assure you that wildfire, or at least phosphoric light, is common in many of the Western Isles, and more particularly in the Outer Hebrides, where I have repeatedly seen it myself attracting itself to moving objects in the dark, and very frequently to the ears and manes of horses driving under the night. For those who feel an interest in such phenomena, I may relate a remarkable instance of it in particular. This was the island of Lewis, by the point as it is called by some. It was winter. The day had been dark and stormy, yet without rain. We finished up our work quickly as we could, and night came on us just as quickly. As it promised to be very rough, we drove home at a smart pace by the road towards Stornoway till we came to that part of it leading along the spit o' land that connects the Yui district to the main island, and entered the full course of the blast that swept across the isthmus at the time. Then, all at once the horse's ears seemed to glow up in a white and blue flame as large as that of any condor, and then his mane seemed all fringed with fire, continuing towards the tip of the collar, the islets of the rains, and all along them as far as the splashboard, became quite luminous and flickering. It was a phosphoric current, 
the flame being blown in the direction of the wind. The most curious feature of the whole was the horse's whip, which suddenly assumed the appearance of a fiery serpent and danced and dangled around in the night wind with a very strange effect. This continued for a considerable part of the road and gradually disappeared as we widened the distance from the beach on which the surf fell heavy on the whole of that day and night. To one unacquainted with the phosphorescence of the sea, those lightnings of the wave, or had never seen the shining light of fish and many kinds of seaweed in the dark, would certainly feel startled. In this instance, we ascribed it to the same causes, so it gave us no uneasiness. Thanks, Jenny. You certainly are an educated gentleman. <laughs> so, we have folks making sense of the will o' the wisps, this phosphorus light as a natural phenomenon. And these educated folks, such as you, Jenny, would mm -hmm. blame naivety and superstition on folks who still believe it to be associated with magic. I don't know. I mean, he's talking about the horse's reins turning into a fiery snake and dancing around in the night. So I don't know where this guy's level of normal is on the supernatural spectrum, but it's not where mine is, Annie. Really, Jenny? <laughs> where is your normal on the supernatural slider? Well, one end is probably a happy horse trotting along, and the other end is a demon being summoned forth from a fiery rain snake's charming dance. And my normal is probably at the bioluminescence of algae in the waters, giving the sea a light buzz of luminous light. Maybe chuck a few jellyfish in there as well. But as soon as my horse's ears start lighting up like indicators, I'm, I'm out of there. I'm gone. <laughs> Well, one other explanation for the Will-o'-the-Wisp is that it's caused by gleams of light created by burning marsh gases. Lots of gases are formed in peat bogs, you see. And if they cannot escape, they end up building up under the stodgy wet ground. Then, it's possible that these gases can spontaneously combust. Mm. In times gone by... An innocent traveller who would see this light in the middle of a peat bog would probably consider it a very evocative ball of, of fire. Um, and I don't think it's too far-fetched to imagine it as a spirit coming to lead you astray. Well, I will take that explanation over a demonic fiery rain charmer any day, Annie. <laughs> We have a really curious account of the Will of the Wisp, written by folklorist and psychic Ada Goodrich Freer. And I think that you would find Goodrich Freer's life really fascinating, Jenny, because she was drawn to the paranormal world, much like you are. <laughs> Though, unfortunately, she was accused of cheating at a seance by all of her psychic pals. What? Who dobs you in for cheating at a seance? Surely they're all cheating at a seance. <laughs> it's not like that one grass ghost nudges another medium across the table and is like, hey, that one with the pigeon feathers isn't listening to me. I tapped three times and she said, hey, she's just making it up as she goes along. 
So few people have genuine psychic gifts, Annie. <laughs> I understand your point, Jenny. Thank you. Well, Goodrich Freer's research was published in the Folklore Journal, so it must have been held in high regard. How do you feel about channeling the spirit of Goodrich Freer to tell this story, Jenny? She was English, so she'll have an English accent, but she had a curiosity and an affinity with the Highlands. The will o' the wisp is said to be of quite modern appearance, at least in South Uist. It was first seen, it is said, in 1812. We believe it to be the haunting spirit of a young girl from Benbecula, who would go down to the Machir, which is the fertile sandy plain beside the sea. Here, she would search for the yellow bedstraw. Yellow bedstraw is a plant used in the dyeing of the local cloth, the tweeds. This young lass committed the sin of seeking to get an undue share of the yellow bedstraw. She took too much. Though it was foraged, it grew on the land understood to be for the common good, and so rightfully should have been divided equally among all the people. At all times the locals had to be frugal with the yellow bedstraw and the plants of the Machair, as they are the plants which bind the sandy soil together, so it isn't reclaimed by the sea. Okay. So, Gudrich Freer is suggesting that a young lassie foraged too much of this plant, the yellow bedstraw, also known as ladies' bedstraw in some places, from shared land. So now she is forced to haunt the island as a will-o'-the-wisp. <gasps> to me, that seems like an exceptionally harsh punishment. <laughs> it does, but this account also differs from what we've seen before because other stories write of the will of the wisp as some sort of spectral glowing light, but none of them mention that these bright illuminations are the ghosts of greedy young girls. Yes, it's certainly a pattern away from the will of the wisps that we've had described before, but in so much Scottish folklore, the creatures of the supernatural world are made up from the spirits, the, the ghosts of the dead. So, mm. so it's not that unusual. And to be honest, I think it's quite comforting to think of spirits of the dead as a, a radiant, flickering light. It's quite lovely, really. Not if that ghost is over-harvesting the sand dunes, Annie. These are fragile ecosystems. Oh, no. Coastal erosion caused by a ghost. <gasps> it's coastal erosion. <laughs> Up by Col Ross and Dune by Colmain, round about the Saddle Hill and come awa' him. Annie, this is an old rhyme that describes an old sheep herding route through the Ochel Hills, which sit between Stirling and Perth. The three hills mentioned in the rhyme are nestled deep in the Ochels, and in the middle of these hills there lies a meadow called Craiginnan. And this meadow was known throughout the land as being the most productive area for hay that anyone had ever known. It was the most famous field in Scotland. It had like 120,000 followers on Instagram and a burgeoning Patreon. 
I don't think they had social medias back then, Jenny. All right, it had a weekly column in the Perthshire Gazette and everyone loved it. And maidens kept strands of its corn in their necklaces. <laughs> now, the man who farmed this bit of land was an honest and hard-working man. But he also had a secret to his success. Annie, can you guess his secret? Has he got a magical cow who gives him infinite milk? Uh, no, that may have been one of his secrets, but not the one that made his field insta-famous. Sorry, Gazette famous. No, his field was so wonderfully productive each year because he worked hand-in-hand with the fairies that lived in the grassy knolls and fairy rings of the Ochel Hills. Each year, the farmer's helpers would cut the hay and lay it in the field, and then they'd just leave it for the rest of the day. And as soon as they left, the fairies would come down from Saddle Hill and up from Colmain, and they would toil all day, spreading the grass out to dry, coiling it up, putting it into lovely neat bundles, and finally stacking it all beautifully, ready for the next day's work. Ready for the Instagram photos. <laughs> but we all know that fairies are unionised and so don't give their labour for free. So what's <laughs> the catch here, Jenny? What was the farmer having to repay the fairies for their meticulous work? He wasn't giving them his firstborn son or something like that. Not quite, Annie. Well, not yet, at least. For their hard work, the farmer was sure to give the fairies the best few fleeces sheared from his sheep that year. And he was adamant that he gave the fairies only the best, highest quality sheep fleeces that he had. So this farmer didn't fleece them on the fleeces he gave them. (laughs) Precisely. (laughs) (laughs) This arrangement worked well for many a decade. Until eventually, the time came for our old farmer to shuffle off this mortal coil. And just before he slipped away, he called his firstborn son to his bedside and passed on the secret of his renowned success. His son must ensure to give the best fleeces every year to the fairies in return for a guaranteed bumper crop. But did the son listen, Annie? Did the son listen? Yes. Of course not! The sons never listen! (laughs) Thinking that he could save himself a good few fleeces each year, the young farmer ordered his own workers into the meadow to do all the work themselves. But each day, after cutting the grass, leaving it out to dry, coiling it up, bundling it and stacking it as well as they could, the workers would come back each morning to see all their effort destroyed. Each bundle of hay was dismantled and spread far and wide across the meadow. And so they'd set to work again and leave the day exhausted. However, this kept happening until finally the hay was completely ruined and the field was a mess. Now the young farmer was not pleased with this at all and decided to take revenge upon the destructive fairies. He ordered his workers to destroy each and every one of their fairy rings and he himself ploughed up all their grassy knolls and committed a thousand other fairy and raging offences. Wow, no wonder the fairy unions put them on strike. <laughs> Why do the sons never listen, Jenny? The patriarchy, Annie, the patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> but this just provoked the fairies to do what fairies do best, and they began wreaking havoc upon the young farmer, his workers and his farm animals. Not the animals, Jenny. Mm -hmm. I just can't stand it when supernatural feuds are taken out on the coos. 
The horses, the cows, and all the sheep took ill one by one and died. The maids had... (laughs) One minute, Jenny. Just give me a second to mourn the cow. (laughs) The maids had their butter snatched right from the churn, taken into fairyland and used to butter the fairy bread. But the fairies didn't stop there. And and, and Jenny, did they sing a song whilst they were stealing the butter? (sighs) Okay, I'll sing the fairy song. Your butter's away to feast our band in the fairy ha. That's that's the song they sang when they stole the butter. (laughs) (laughs) I I can see why they're not musicians. (laughs) But they didn't stop there, Annie. One night, when our young farmer was on his way home from a raucous night in the village, as he passed through the untamed Glen Queeg, he saw before him dancing fiery orbs, the -the will-o'-the-wisps. Unable to ignore them, he followed their gentle bobbing and dipping as it led him further and further from the path. And before long, he found himself slowly sinking into an old well. And as he sank, the fiery orbs transformed into fairies, celebrating leading him astray to his watery demise. A final punishment for destroying their circles and their homes. So in a way, the fairies did take the old farmer's firstborn. Yes, they did indeed. But through no fault of our old farmer. The fairies take revenge not for the disruption of their work agreement. Their messing up the field was just a light warning and could have all been rectified if the sun had taken heed to this warning. But the fairies take revenge for the sun's doubling down, his destruction of their homes and sacred places. And this isn't just a few bales of hay. This is a huge wrong. And so the fairies willow the wisp themselves into deadly guides. And I suppose the lesson of this tale is that if a wise old man tells you to work with the fairies, then you'd better listen to that wise old man. Mm, it's difficult because in half the Scottish folklore, it seems you get into just as much trouble from following the advice of wise old men who turn out to be some kind of Kelpie or imp or giant or some kind of spirit in disguise who's tricking you into doing something that will inevitably lead to your demise. But then on the other hand, even if you don't listen and the fairies give you a fair warning, it might be better to just back down and concede, heed their warning, else a wee fiery ball of light is going to inevitably get you. But I think this story does leave me with one lingering question, Jenny. Hmm. What did the fairies do with the fleeces that they got from the the sheep, the finest of the fleeces? Were they making wee fairyle jumpers, <laughs> doing some knitting? Socks. Everyone knows that fairies knit the best socks, Annie. I did not know that, Jenny. Well, if you've been reading the Fields Weekly article in the Gazette, then you'd be well aware of that fact, Annie. <laughs> Thanks, Jenny. <laughs> What a strange journey we have led our listeners on this week, Annie. Well, hopefully we haven't led them into deep, dark peat bog along the way. (laughs) (laughs) And if we have, sorry about that. So sorry, so very sorry. Yeah, we're new to this as well. Not what we meant to do. (laughs) But thank you all so much for joining us as we explored the strange folklore that is the spunky, the will or the wisp. 
If you enjoyed your guided tour through the peat bog today, then please tell your friends or give us a share on social media. And if you can, give us a cheeky little five-star rating and leave us a little review. It's the main way that this podcast grows and that other people are able to find their way through the darkness to us and enjoy the wonderful little fiery orbs that we create. We are a small independent podcast made with love in the highlands of Scotland. If you'd like to help support us as we make these episodes, you can also join our Patreon by going to www.patreon.com slash stories of Scotland. For the price of a small torch or maybe a flashlight as you Americans call them, you can help us avoid the will o' the wisps and find our way home while also receiving bonus content about lots of weird and wonderful Scottish tidbits. I just did one on rewilding and the wolf, which was a lot of fun to do. Oh! So, so we'd <laughs> like to welcome all of our new trustful light supplying patrons Melissa W, Isabella, Isla, and Phoebe, Shane M, Dylan H, Catherine K, Anna H, and Ellie, Twilight, and Robin, who want to come to Scotland one day and uncover the enchanted world of the fairies. And hopefully not get lost in any bogs. (laughs) Thank you all so much for listening and for supporting our wee podcast. We've just passed the 50 episode mark, which is really wonderful. And we couldn't have got here without each of you supporting us um, in whatever way you do, whether it's on Patreon, social media, or just by listening along with us each fortnight or so that we make an episode. So (laughs) thank you all so 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 much Slangeva Slangeva